I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me, uh, and uh, I want to take a look at, we're going to be looking in Ruth chapter 3, but before we do that, I've got a couple of other verses I'd like you to, to see uh, that'll give us some context for where we're headed today. I've got quite a bit to talk about and half an hour to do it, so I don't know how much I'm going to be able to get through. Um, the... Uh, the, the challenge with preaching the word is that there's always so much to say, isn't there? And um, <clears throat> I'm, uh, I wanted to mention this real quick, that uh, I am so grateful for what has happened out in Asbury at the, uh, the, the awakening uh, in, um, in Kentucky and uh, encourage you to, to uh, take a, a look and see, uh, maybe read some, some blogs, read some, some wonderful Christian reviews of what has happened out there. Uh, I believe that uh, that they uh, they stopped on Saturday. Maybe it was. I think you were right, Jay. We we talked about it. Maybe it was Friday night. I think that was the final the final night of that awakening in the college context. But of course, it continues elsewhere. But here's the very interesting news that I saw when I was looking at this last night: is that at a secular university, Texas A&M, they've been having revival. It broke out four days ago, four or five days ago. And uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students have been flocking uh, to hear the word of the Lord. Uh, and they've been baptizing people in the fountain at Texas A&M and uh, singing songs of worship. I saw a video with uh, Texas A&M students, literally hundreds of them, singing praise songs to Jesus at a secular university. God is doing something. God is doing something. There's a report. Uh, there, there are reports out there that these uh, these awakenings, these these revivals, are happening in in schools, in uh, in, in uh, uh, high schools, in colleges, in churches. It's just amazing. And uh, I was reading a, a report. I guess the uh, they just released in the in the theaters the the uh, the Jesus Revolution movie with uh, the story of Lonnie. I'm sure you did. And. Uh, I, I knew you guys probably saw it, and you'd probably be wanting to tell everybody to go see it today, right? So uh, I, heard, uh, I heard that it's very good. I haven't seen it. Amen. Yeah, you remember that. That's good. Well, thank you. I, I, I want to uh, tentatively endorse this because I haven't seen it. So, um, again, exercise, exercise your uh, discernment. But I believe uh, that it's, uh, it's really stirring, faith-stirring. And, um, and what a unique thing that it should come out literally at the same time that we're having this awakening again. I was doing some research into the awakenings that have taken place at Asbury. And uh, this is not the first time it's happened. It's happened multiple times. And... Um, it's just such a remarkable thing to see generation, Gen Z, awakening to the things of the Lord. Who knew? And uh, I mean, we have been praying for it. You know, it's kind of, I feel like those who were praying for Peter's release from prison, and next thing he's standing at the door, and we're like, no, it can't be him. <laughs> Please continue to pray. Continue to pray for the Lord to, to stir our community, our community right here with those same revival fires, those same spirit. It's not, it's, not, um, it's not manufactured, and we don't want to manufacture anything. But to see young people crying out to Jesus, repenting, 
And we're not just talking about confession of sins, we're talking about repentance. And we had a conversation with somebody over the weekend about that and how different that is. Confession is, is to tell the Lord that you, what you've done and to be sorry for it, but repentance is to actually turn around and go the opposite direction. And uh, that's what's happening. Well, <clears throat> this does play in a little bit to, uh, to what I want to talk about today because you may recall last week we, we had a look at the book of Ruth and we saw through, um, through that sort of literary structure and through some other things that there was a key verse in, in, in chapter 2 uh, that, that was really a big, a big deal. It's the leaving father and mother and country and lands and whatever for, uh, uh, for covenant loyalty. We saw that idea there and I referenced Jesus talking about that with his disciples and the rich young ruler and so forth. And, um, and I, had a, I had some more time to think about that this week and think about how important that is. And I wanted to remind you <coughs> what it actually means to leave behind and to go towards. And, um, uh, and, and to talk about that in terms of the practical application for young people and for and for older folks like me as well. Um, the, uh, the call of the Lord is to step away from our earthly identity into a new identity, right? We've, we've kind of seen the spiritual value of this. We say no to our earthly uh, identity and yes to our heavenly identity in Christ. So we see ourselves no longer according to the flesh, but if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So this this puts us in a place, if we, if we take that principle and we begin to build on it, it puts us in a place where we have to make a choice between the way we are naturally inclined to think or the way we have right to think in the natural order and puts us into a place of having to choose submission to the way God identifies us. <clears throat> I was reading, uh, I had been asked to review some information, a, a series um, teaching high schools, high school students about identity and sexual identity, because obviously that's a really big topic uh, at the moment in our culture, the gender identity and, and, uh, and, and uh, inclusion and embrace and, and so forth. And, um, and so, Christian schools are uh, are in a unique place where they're uh, they don't have to follow the the, the mandates uh, that might be the same that might be one way in a secular environment, but within the Christian context, they're allowed to present their own faith and their own ways. Nevertheless, the conversation is becoming more and more uh, important. Uh, we can't get away from it. We can't ignore it, and not just in schools, but obviously in in all of our lives. So whether it's whether it's uh, whether it's little kids in 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 elementary school and middle school and so forth, all the way up to college. Uh, and you know, postgraduate uh, stuff as well. We we all have to figure out uh, where we stand on these issues and how how we align ourselves. And I was watching a video from a, a young man, a, a doctor in his field, uh, PhD in his field, uh, and he was presenting something, uh, talking about his own identity, his own sexual identity, and um, he's a Christian. And he was presenting uh, a case for um, uh, holiness in our sexual expression. And, uh, and he said that the issue is not, uh, we can't get hung up at the issue of heterosexuality or homosexuality. Um, what we have to do is, is we've got to find ourselves at a, at a, at a decision uh, where we choose to do it God's way or not God's way. 
and um, and this isn't this isn't a debate about how we're born or how we feel or how we're attracted to anybody uh, or not attracted to anybody. That uh, it seems like that's the that's the part where everybody gets all flung out. Uh, that's where the arguments all happen. But but on a deeper level, there is a decision we have to make, and that is to either obey God or not obey God. We either choose our own way that we think or we choose the way that God has declared for us, and it is a matter of hearing the Lord and being obedient to what we hear, not figuring it all out in our heads and having a, a way forward. So this young, this young Ph.D., uh, says that he has always had attraction to uh, people of the same gender. And, um, and he had to wrestle through that. Growing up in church, this was a, obviously a really big thing for him. And he said he didn't, he didn't say that, that, that this was something that had to be changed in order for him to be holy. He said that what needed to Make what, what the decision he needed to make to be holy was to say, "Lord, I abstain from following my will and my way," because the temptations within that context are the same, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual. The, the temptations are the same. We have our own desires versus the Lord saying, "This is holy and this is profane." And we have to choose who we're going to listen to. So we've talked about this before here in church. We've talked about following the ancient way and trying to, to observe the ancient way regardless of the tides of culture. But I found it profound that this person did not go off into a tirade against people who feel one way or feel another because that, as it turns out, wasn't actually helpful. What was helpful was saying God has called all of us to identify ourselves through his identity, not through our earthly, natural identity. And our natural identity is everything from the tone of our, of our skin, our skin color, to our ethnicity, uh, how we grew up in what tribal group we grew up, to our, uh, our language, our education levels, uh, even gender, and, and, and all these things. These are all our earthly identity. And Christ has given us something that transcends our earthly identity. The promise is that if any person is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so we are invited by the Lord to leave behind father, mother, lands, brothers, sisters, etc. I would say take all of that and lump it into one concept. We are invited by the Lord to leave behind our earthly identity and to choose to follow him into a spiritual identity which is eternally secure. Now, the Bible has said that God made us in his image. Male and female, he made us in his image. Inside of the context of our Christianity, the dominance issue has been erased. The dominance issue, because there is no male or female, no slave, no Greek, no slave or free, no Greek, no Gentile, no Jew, in Christ all are one. Because of that, we are, we are expected to transcend the things, the power struggle that we've always had as human beings. You understand? So here's the, here's the crux. The crux is you get to choose. If you want to make this the hill that you die on, then you can, 
But there is a much better hill to live on. And that is, that is the identity that God gives us in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? How does that play out? Well, in this particular young man's life, it looks like holy celibacy. He's actually given himself to honor the Lord, to not pursue the desires of his heart because he says, you know what? Christ has invited me to trust him, to trust him that I don't need I don't need fulfillment in all these desires of my life to actually have the peace and the shalom of God inside. God is able to provide that in other ways. You know what? He says that temptation comes to all of us. And I, I liked what this young man said. He said temptation comes to all of us and temptation itself is not a sin. The way we are tempted is maybe different for each of us, but temptation is not a sin for Christ was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. See? In his temptation, Christ didn't sin, and in our temptation, we are also invited to not sin. We are expected to not sin. We are empowered to not sin by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so we get to have a higher level of fulfillment in the Lord and of honoring the Lord and of living out righteous lives because we're not answering the unanswerable questions that the world has. Listen, they're going to come at us with conundrum after conundrum after conundrum. And the more we question it, the more we're going to be awash in the ocean of angry waves. But there is a solid rock on which we can stand, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he has given us his word, which we can trust. And so, I want to say to all of you who are wrestling with this and are struggling with, you know, how do I, how do I fit this? Where's the framework? How do, I, how do I live in a world that's becoming more and more strange and, and, and unfamiliar to me? And how do I, how do I live and... and and be a faithful Christian and hold on to this while at the same time having a heart of love and compassion for everybody, even those who look different from me. How do I do that? I say you do it through one fundamental choice. You leave your earthly father and mother, as it were, your earthly identity, and you cling to the identity that Christ has given you. And you make that the core of who you are. You do have a choice. And I'll say that the world is definitely lost. But all those who put their faith in Christ are found. So, as we get back to the book of Ruth, I see that Ruth had to choose an identity. Now, for her, it wasn't a sexual identity as we're dealing with transgender right now. But for her, Ruth was a foreigner, so an immigrant, a foreigner. She was an outcast. She was expelled. You know, Moabites were not supposed to ever be in the presence of the Lord for sure. They weren't. They weren't allowed in the in the temple uh, or in the tabernacle. They were Moabites were persona non grata. She was a widow, so that meant that she was impoverished and poor and had no rights. So, as a as an impoverished uh, widow, she came into a uh, into a land that wasn't her own, and she had to somehow find herself. And the story of the book of Ruth seen through this lens is actually really pretty profound. It's an amazing display of how God wants us to live in our world now. Listen, we can fight for our identity, whatever that identity is. We can fight for our rights. You, you, you check the box on whatever it is that you feel makes you in, inferior and say, I can fight and become sufficient in that if I want to. But Ruth's journey to fulfillment, Ruth's journey to redemption, Ruth's journey to the 
demonstration of God in using her in his eternal plan of salvation and bringing ultimately Christ into the world was through surrender to a holy God, an identity that was going to be given to her rather than claimed by her. It's an amazing story for that regard, in that regard. Throughout the Old Testament, we see blessedness directly linked to obedience through Scripture. Haven't we seen that? How many of you want to be blessed? Does anybody want to live a blessed life? I think I do. When I woke up on January the 10th with the Lord singing over me that song, The Blessing, I, I can honestly say since that time, I, I've just, I've, my heart just feels such peace. We've been through quite a season of um, since since January 10th until now. In fact, Ted and I were talking about it at, at breakfast one morning, and Ted said, "Eric, ever since you started singing that song, the blessing over us, it's like it's like all hell broke loose." And and uh, don't stop singing it, but don't stop singing the song. But can we can we try to figure out what's going on? Why does that happen when we're singing? You know, the Lord is singing over us, blessedness. Uh, then we have the spiritual attack on all sides. Well, I think. Um, I just want to say that in spite of all the, of all the, the, the topsy-turvy stuff that's happened in my life in the last month and a half, I can honestly say I've never had a peace like I have right now, knowing that the blessedness in my life is there because God is speaking it over me. And I know you want that blessedness too. But it turns out blessedness in the Scripture, in the, in the, in the Old Testament, is always linked together with obedience. It's very, very interesting. Uh, I mean, if you think about the Deuteronomic blessing where God says, okay, you're going to have the people of, of Israel stand on the two mountains. You know, half of you stand on Mount Gerizim, half of you on Mount Ebal, and, and I'm going to speak blessings and cursings over you. If you follow me and you, and you live according to my covenant, then these blessings will be yours. But if you don't, if you choose to, to uh, commit adultery, as it were, with the false gods of the other nations, if you follow after your own way and you choose the way of the world instead of me, then these are the cursings that are going to be upon you. We recognize that, right? I mean, look, take it back even further than that. You go back to the Garden of Eden and you see the blessing of God in the garden and the prohibition against eating from that tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, essentially defining yourself rather than let God define you. I will be who I will be. Let me take the fruit and eat it and become who I want to be, that independent spirit. And after that, there was a curse. So we see blessing and curse. We see these things associated with obedience, don't we? I think it's pretty, pretty safe to say that when you search for blessing in the Old Testament and the New, you will find it directly linked with some level of obedience. Interesting to find out, however, that there is no word for obedience in the Old Testament. Uh, th there is no specific word that means to obey. Uh, instead, the word that we have translated as to obey is the word shema. Shema, a Hebrew word which actually means to listen or to hear. Interesting, of course, when Jesus tells his disciples, he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, as it turns out, this word Shema, it's, it's, it's famous because of the Shema, the Old Testament uh, uh, most you know, holy prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Um, this, uh, the Shema is a, is, a, 
it's not just to be heard, it's to be recited. But again, it's not just to be recited, it's to be heeded. And to heed something means to not only hear it, but to do it as well. Didn't Jesus often tell us that those who heard his word but didn't do it were kind of like those who built their house on the sand instead of on the rock, or, or, or they don't bear fruit. If you hear my words and you do them, you will bear much fruit, etc. Uh, we see the pleasure of the Lord in those who not only hear but do the parable, for example, of the of the, the son who, who says to his father, sure, I'll do what you ask, and then doesn't do it. And the son who says to his father, I won't do it, but then ends up doing it. Which one is more pleasing to the Lord? Well, obviously, the one who actually did the work, right? That's the... Um, that's the one. So, so clearly we recognize that there is a, a link with obedience. But here's that powerful thought. This word Shema, uh, it's through hearing the Lord with a spirit of listening and obeying. That's what brings the blessedness. Ruth's blessedness in her life comes through the action that is associated with her statements of faith. She has heard about God through Naomi. She has heard that God is blessing his people in Bethlehem, the house of bread, that there is bread in the house of bread. She has determined to leave behind all of her other identity and to associate herself with this God. She has come to seek for shelter under the wings of the Almighty. And, uh, and it's in that place that she has found her identity. So she has obeyed. And on account of that, blessedness happens. I noticed in Ruth chapter 2, okay, you know what, just go to Ruth chapter 2. I noticed in Ruth chapter 2 that there was multiple mention of this blessing. Ruth chapter 1 doesn't speak of any blessing. Uh, instead, it suggests that there was some sort of a curse. Uh, it doesn't say that there was a curse, but Naomi seems to suggest that she's been cursed by God. And, um, and, and she even... Uh, she even says that he's dealt bitterly with her. And so chapter one doesn't speak of it. But from the moment Boaz shows up in chapter two of the book of Ruth, we see blessedness, blessedness, blessedness. Boaz speaks a blessing. Look in Ruth, Ruth chapter two and verse, um, uh, verse uh, where is it here? Verse four. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And, uh, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. That is a blessing. We know it from the from the um, uh, the blessing of of Aaron. Uh, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. Well, I'll sing it here at the end of the service, and we'll do it again. So the Lord be with you is a, is a blessing. So we we see words of blessing, and then they answer. His servants say, "The Lord bless you." So so there's just we're seeing this this environment of blessing. And as I look at Boaz, he represents to me uh, sort of a proto. Uh, yeah, a type of Christ, isn't he? He's, uh, he, he represents the, um, the, the long-awaited Messiah, as it were, that, uh, that Naomi and Ruth sort of had heard about. I mean, Naomi kind of knew that he was there, but Ruth didn't know who this guy was. And it just so happened that she ended up in his field. And it's just a beautiful thing. But here he is emerging. And who is he? Who is this Messiah figure? Who is this proto-king because as you know, our Bible series is called They Look, They Asked for a King. Who is this proto-king, Boaz? He's the one who brings blessing. He's the one who brings blessing. Let me just say this with regard to our expectation for Messiah. Our expectation for Messiah is that Messiah brings blessing. Beracha. He brings blessing. Messiah must bring blessing. Not curse. Not upon those who love him and who follow him. He brings blessing. After all, it was 
in Genesis chapter 3 through a curse that we received the first promise of Messiah, that he would be the one who would break the curse. So the first expectation of Messiah is going to be that he comes breaking the curse. <laughs> and so Boaz shows up and blessing emerges. And it, it just again and again, this blessing. Uh, Ruth is asking to glean, not just to glean in the, in the fields where the reapers have already been, but she's asking to glean even amongst the sheaves. She's asking a radical question. Hey, listen, I need more. It's not just for me. It's for my mother-in-law. I need more. Can you please allow me to, to take some advantage here and to you know, do even more for me than you would for the normal poor? There's a radical request, and he, she is blessed to receive from that radical request. And I, I, I see from that uh, a permission for us as believers when we look to our Redeemer that we ask radical, radical requests, bigger than we're allowed to, bigger than the law even gives room for, to ask these radical requests. And what happens? There's blessedness. She is blessed. Boaz says, listen, my daughter, he defines a relationship with her that's safe. He doesn't say, listen, my girl, or listen, my woman, or listen, my servant. He says, listen, my daughter. He establishes a relationship immediately that's one of trust. And so I want to just take this for a moment and say, when it comes to identity, when it comes to choosing our identity, either the identity of the world, I mean, maybe, and again, forgive me for harping on this context, but I think it's the real hot topic right now. So this idea that, well, I'm, I'm trapped in a body that it's not, you know, this is, I don't feel like I belong in this body. This is not my body. I want a different one. I want to change my identity. That, that is a, a real struggle that people go through. And how they got to that place, I don't know. I don't know what that feels like to have that confusion in there. And my heart breaks for people who do, right? My heart breaks for people who struggle with that. But I want to say that there is a solution. There is a solution here, and the solution is in the identity that Christ gives us, which is not the solution the world gives, which is go ahead and change your identity. The, the solution that Christ gives us is surrender your identity and let me give you a new one. Okay, surrender your identity and your rights to identity and let me give you a new one. But you say, well, how can I trust you? Ah, and herein lies the rub. See, obedience, which comes first? Understanding or obedience? Well, I actually think that that's very hard to answer that question. Maybe neither of them come first. Maybe what comes first is trust. How can I obey somebody that I don't trust? How can I understand enough to obey somebody that I don't trust? I think there is a core element that has to be here. Trust. Trust has to come. And you know how trust comes? In this passage, trust comes because Boaz identifies himself. Boaz identifies himself before he identifies her. And he identifies himself as the one who brings blessing. And in that blessing and in that grace and in that amazing place of wonder where he is celebrating a harvest and he's welcoming even those who are strangers into his midst, it's there in that place where he is truly 
Lord, he's Boaz is Lord of his fields. When Christ identifies himself as the Lord of our lives, as the Lord in this context, and he comes and he brings joy and he brings grace and he reaches out to us, it's in that place that he begins the process of healing our broken hearts. And it is amazing how quickly Ruth trusts Boaz. Now she needs what is in his field. But he gives us something so much bigger. His first statement to her is an identity statement. My daughter. Now remember, she's an orphan. And his first statement to her is an identifier. My daughter. He relates himself to her. And now I understand that my daughter was a, a phrase that was used you know, to separate out the, the old and the young. And it was recognizing the distance in age. But... I think one of the most beautiful things about it is it's clearly a profound statement of, hey, listen, I'm not interested in you in some sexual way here. We're going to have a relationship that's going to be safe. You won't be abused in this field. Nobody's going to take advantage of you. Our relationship here is going to be pure. It's going to be holy. There's a holiness invitation in this moment. And as he identifies her as this, he also gives her place in the family. Remember, she is a foreigner, a Moabitess, who should not be called daughter by a, an Israelite, not by a godly one anyway. Shouldn't be called daughter, shouldn't be called wife, shouldn't be called anything, except get out of here, you unclean thing. But he reaches out to her and he says, my daughter. And that, identifi that identifier is what changes the whole nature of this book. In that moment, all of us can foresee it's like a foreshadowing of what's coming next. All of us can see, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I want to say, for those of us who are trying to figure out how in the world we, we live in the context of, 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 of a, a generation that is, that is under tremendous pressure to find identity, I say, it's very important that we introduce Jesus and we show Jesus to be who he is, the one who brings blessing. The one who is safe. And it's in that place of trust that I think obedience will come. Understanding? Well, I don't know. I've heard it say, said, and I've actually probably preached, preached, bless you, I've probably preached this myself before, that understanding comes after obedience. Sometimes I've got to obey first before I can understand what God's up to. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's not usually an act of faith to understand everything that God is doing and then say, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I'll do that. Usually God calls me out to do something crazy, and then under, I'll understand later. That, for whatever it's worth, hang on to that. That's worth, you know, just put it in your pocket. But above obedience and understanding comes this thing of trust. It's relational. Christ wants you to know him as he knows you. And out of that will come the place where you and I are willing to say, you know what? Yeah, I'm willing to give up my rights to be the best me that I can be, to experience life. You know, you only live once, so you do it well. You know what? No, I don't only live once. In Christ, I live forever. I live forever. And this temporary trial that I'm going through right now will not last forever. It will last until the Lord takes me home or until the Lord ends this trial. But the storm will cease and I will enter into safe harbor with him. And forever I will be with the Lord. And you know what? That's enough. So for the time being, if I have to live like that young man that I was talking about, a celibate holy life until I'm with the Lord, then so be it. Because it's better, it's better to have relationship with Jesus than it is 
to be all settled in myself. The promises that the world makes that you can settle the confusion in your heart by just changing some things. I think it's naive. I think thousands and thousands of years of human history have shown us we can't fix ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. And so have compassion on those around you who are desperate to change things in their lives. And don't, don't be angry at them because of the ways that they want to change it. Recognize the deep pain of their hearts, but come to them with the solution. Who is Jesus? So Boaz, he speaks blessing over her. I see blessedness, blessedness, blessedness. He gives her more than she asks for. He takes care of her. He treats her right. And in chapter 3, it gets even better. It gets even better. Chapter 2 is about taking care of her immediate needs. It's about taking care of her, her the, the shelter, food, uh, identity in the community, her, her, her safety there and so forth. But it's going to go further. And that's the relationship Jesus wants to have with each one of us as well. Our relationship with Jesus isn't just about having our bills paid. I mean, how many of you want your bills paid on time? Anybody? Sure you do, right? How many of you yearn to have your, your, uh, you know, your, your families intact or, or, uh, or, or your, your, your business thrive or, or perhaps your creativity uh, flourish and be recognized? Don't we all have dreams that we want to see come true? Of course we do. But there is a greater purpose in your redemption. There's a greater purpose than just having a successful life. There's a greater purpose than being able to put your head on a pillow at night and sleep peacefully. There is a greater purpose. And the greater purpose is revealed to us in this story in Ruth chapter 3. And I can't believe I'm only just now starting to preach it and I've got eight seconds left. Seven, six. I thought I was going to get through it all before we leave for Africa, but you're going to have to wait a couple of weeks to get to Ruth chapter 3. There's a, there's a profound call. Can I just give you a hint of it? There's one of those literary structures in chapter 3 as well. You know, the one where it starts with these mirroring uh, ideas at the, bit, at the top and at the bottom, and then they kind of work their way through to the middle where the, the meat is and the sandwich. Well, I don't have time to show you the whole, the whole structure, but the meat in the middle of the sandwich is this verse in verse 10 of chapter 3, where Boaz says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last chesed, this last kindness, Greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. That's the ham in the sandwich right there, the lamb in the sandwich. That's the one. I want to tell you that when we abandon the world's view of how we ought to live our lives, and we chase after Jesus, even though he's not sexy. Sorry, I'm sorry for the words, but maybe... It's a, it's a 21st century world in New England. I'm sure you understand the concept. If we go after the old guy, Jesus, the ancient way, instead of choosing all the newfangled ones, the hot new version, there's a blessedness that he's going to speak out, which is going to be more than making provision for us in terms of our needs. Those are total redemption that God brings in this story to Ruth and to Naomi, and not just to them, 
but ultimately to the whole world. There's a total redemption. Let me just tell you that your Christianity, if it's just about living a comfortable life, it's wonderful. The Lord blesses you and you get to do that. That's awesome. I do want you to know that that's not normal and it usually doesn't last for long. Okay, because in this world, we will have trouble. We, we do have an enemy of our souls and he does want to destroy us. And so that we are at war. And so it is nice to have your comfy little house. But don't forget that at any moment, some, you know, some cruise missile could come in from somewhere and destroy all things that you love. And I'm not saying that as a, to have you panic about your life in Jesus. I'm just saying, just be realistic, people. We're living in a war zone, spiritually speaking. It won't be like this forever, which is why we need to be circumspect and not live according to the, the lusts of the flesh. But I'm just saying to you, if your Christianity is about getting all your, your ducks in a row and having your life in order, that's wonderful, but there's something more. For Ruth, there was going to be a husband. And for Ruth and Boaz, there was going to be a baby. And for Israel, there was going to be a king. And for the world, there's going to be Messiah. And I'm telling you that this generation needs to know that their womb can bear Christ also. And if we allow them to think that the way of the world will heal them, that following after the way the world does, with all the wonderful wisdom that the world is trying to put together. And listen, I can commend people on their heart. They want to be kind. They want to be loving. They want, they want people's problems to go away. I get it. I'm not... I'm not saying that they're wrong for, for desire, desiring that, but the way they're going about that cannot bring about what God has envisioned, which is why you and I need to make a choice. Under whose wings will we seek shelter? Under whose wings will we sh seek shelter? Are we going to go after the sexy new thing and follow the ways of the world? Or are we going to say, I choose the ancient way. I choose the old guy. That, my friends, is the gospel. How long does it take to build trust in Jesus? I don't know. For some, it's instantaneous for others it takes many years it took Nicodemus many years before he was willing to say I'll risk it all for you Jesus Nicodemus met him first under cover of night and then later he spoke out but he kind of got reprimanded and put in his place by his fellows finally at the end of the story Nicodemus is willing to say I'll put it all out there I'll show everybody I'm a follower of Christ give me his body how we're going to bury it and put it in a tomb and I'll spend my own money doing it sometimes it takes a while for others trust comes so beautifully miraculously like the day dawning and it's just there the darkness is gone and the light has come today I tell you there may be some here for whom trust has been a long time coming. I want to introduce you 
to Jesus. I don't know that I can. I think he has to do it for himself. He has to show himself strong to you. But let me at least testify to him. Let me at least tell you that he is amazing. He is amazing. And he's real. Not a figment of our imagination, not a fairy tale, not a, not a well-wishing wannabe. He's the king of all creation and he exists and he is here. And he loves you. And I invite you. I invite you to put your trust in him. I invite you to call out to him and say, all right, Lord, if you're there, I need to know you. I want to know you. And it's as simple as a prayer. That's where it begins. It begins with an ask. And the ask is, show yourself to me. But know this. That when he does show himself to you, you will have a choice to make. And I can tell you from having made that choice to follow him, you will not be disappointed. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, in this glorious place where our hearts are stirred, would you, O oh Lord, reveal yourself to each one of us as our kinsman redeemer, the one who comes to save us from our sins and to release us from the yoke of bondage. Lord, I pray that in this house today, not one heart would be blind anymore, but that all would see. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.